Well, turn to Isaiah 24. We're finally back to Isaiah. Uh, This is an unusual portion of the book in that um, it moves from the kinds of judgments that all of us understand and, and can conceive <laughs> new chair, new way to sit. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I can have some fun. <laughs> Jim in the box. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, but we didn't really want a, a character reference, Elena. So. This is why women are supposed to speak. <laughs> uh, oh boy, he said that, I didn't. Uh, um, this, this passage is going to turn from what we've been accustomed to seeing, the kinds of judgments of destructions of cities and so forth, to a worldwide cosmic judgment. And so sometimes this is called Isaiah's little apocalypse. Um, the term apocalypse you are familiar with and, and will have an appropriate view of what it means for, most, for the most part in, in uh, Old Testament studies it's really a bad term. Uh, it, it means that this is all um, irresponsible morally. It's, it, it, they're, it, it's a bad term among biblical scholars. But uh, apocalyptic judgments are what's in view in this passage. And so it's been called that. So that we're talking about the day of the Lord and Israel in a world setting. So as, as we're going into this, I want to do chapter 24 today. Uh, in it, we're going to focus upon um, the a kind of climax to everything that we've been looking at since chapter 1, in effect. In chapter 1, you had prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem in chapters 1 to 12. Then in chapters 13 to 23, there were prophecies against foreign nations. But now all of that is going to come together. And everything is going to work together. Everything that Isaiah has said up to this point has been preparing for, in a way, chapters 24 to 27. So here we come into this Isaiah's apocalypse, and then we'll look at specific statements about judgment again for Judah and Jerusalem. And then the important historical section 36 to 39 that we'll look at in days to come. In this passage, uh, chapter 24 gives us a, a view of horrible universal judgments for universal sin. Um, that then is followed in chapter 25 by praise to the Lord for judgment resulting in deliverance and blessing. 26, then, Judah will sing a song of rejoicing in their future consolation, and then 27... Israel's enemies will be punished, but Israel's remnant will be restored because the Lord cares for them. So we have a kind of uh, ABBA pattern here. Uh, this is called a chiasmus. 
the, the term is not important. What I want to emphasize, though, is that very frequently in Scripture you have this kind of ABBA pattern, and in it you are um, pairing ideas in a pattern where you have A, B, B, A, so that you have a crossing pattern. The A's go together and the B's go together. Sometimes you have it on a very small level. For example, a verse that most of you will know is in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, uh, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord to lose heart when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. So the loving acceptance of God and the, and the harsh, uh, what appears to be harsh discipline that, that is in the middle. What's interesting there, and typically in, a, in this ABBA pattern, you're, you're, you're putting the emphasis on one or another of the pairs. It depends on the context which one. And in Hebrews 12, you're, you're observing that the loving acceptance of God surrounds his scourging chastening. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Right? So that in verses, that's about verse 6, in verse 7 and following, he's not doing this because we're bad. He's doing this because he loves us. Does this make sense to you? Uh, by the same token, in Isaiah, then, we have the ABBA pattern, judgment on the two outside, the A sections, and um, hope and... and, uh, and uh, uh, delight in the two middle sections, the B, the B sections. The emphasis is going to be ultimately to warn not only <coughs> the nations, but Israel, that judgment is coming, but on the other side of judgment is hope. Yeah. A, B, B, A, does that mean that this section is from the Father, from Abba? No. <laughs> that's, that's altogether our, <laughs> our terminology. <laughs> That we've added to that, so no, yeah, you we're hoping, but <laughs> um, so so this is where we're headed. In chapter twenty-four, we're going to focus on the horrible universal judgments for universal sin, and there is an intimation already in chapter twenty-four that these these horrible judgments lead to hope, but in the midst of the hope, the prophet's still in the time of judgment. Does this make sense to you? So. Um, horrible judgments. The back, this is by uh, Motier. The background to the whole passage is found in the flood narratives in Genesis six to nine. There are key ties to the in the text to Genesis six, seven, eight, nine, where you have the, uh, the story of the flood and its aftermath. Both passages refer to the windows of heaven. So it's essentially the same phrase in Hebrew. Um, and to the everlasting covenant. There, I don't think there's another reference to an everlasting, to the phrase everlasting covenant in the whole Bible. Um, the, the terms everlasting and covenant occur together, but not as a single phrase. Um, the curse in verse 6, in the context of the vine theme in verse 7, looks back to Noah, the vine dresser, and to the post-alluvian curse. Isaiah is forecasting, this, this is the important part of this that's on the screen. Isaiah is forecasting a divine visitation on, this, on the same world scale um, 
obliterating an old order because of its sin. There's a new order coming, but this old order has to be judged and has to be judged thoroughly. Are you with me here? So that, and it will be judged in much the same way that the old flood did. So once again, we see the flood and its aftermath as a model and a promise of what God will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So he's going to use what appear to be incompatible imagery uh, at, at places. He'll talk about floods and overwhelming destruction, but then he'll immediately talk about fire. Fire and flood don't usually go together precisely. Do you follow? So if you've got fire, you probably don't have flood because flood's going to put the fire out. Yeah. Obviously, there are situations in our day where flood and fire would go together, so you break up gas, natural gas lines and so you can get fire there. But they, that wouldn't have been an issue for these folks. Yes? So uh, what's going on here? Well, chapter 24, 1 to 12, talk about the horrible judgments. Uh, let's get into this section. 24, 1 to 12. Behold, the Lord lays waste the earth devastates it, distorts its surface, scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste, completely destroyed, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. Few men are left. The new wine mourns. The vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. You might translate that even groan. Um, The gaiety of the tambourine ceases. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink uh, wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The, The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Dissolution is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. This is an utterly um, um, destructive period. Everything is falling apart. Um, Let's talk about the passage just briefly. Um, Probably at the core, to, just to get at it, look at verse 5. The earth is, uh, is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. What is this everlasting covenant we're talking about? Probably we're talking about the only covenant in Scripture that's made with all flesh, mm-hmm. namely the Noahic covenant. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Yeah. There are... Um, Noah, Abraham, oh, five covenants that are critical in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. 
in order, they are the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9, the Abrahamic Covenant, kind of the key passage, Genesis 15, the Mosaic Covenant, which is Exodus 20 through Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, uh, the um, um, Davidic Covenant, Second Samuel 17, and First Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 7, First Chronicles 17, and the New Covenant, Deuter- uh, Jeremiah 31. Um, those are the five covenants that are that are on the surface of the scriptures. Others see other covenants, an Adamic covenant, but there's no evidence for an Adamic covenant. Okay, simply no evidence for it. Um, you have to in, you have to impose the category on the text to get an Adamic covenant. Some see a Palestinian covenant, which is named in Deuteronomy, but I think that's a renewal of the Mosaic covenant. Others see covenant of redemption and covenant of grace, and are you with me here? But again, that's a theological construct we bring to the text, not what we find specifically in the text. So from my point of view, I follow a very important principle set up in 1 Corinthians 4.6, where Paul says, these things I have put in figurative form concerning myself and Apollos, that in us you may learn, and their translations go in slightly different directions there, but they're all coming to the same conclusion. I, I take it that what follows, that, that in us you may learn, what follows that is kind of a proverb or an axiom. Uh, grammatically, the Greek will support this, and, and the axiom is nothing beyond what's written. So if I'm going to be an expositor of Scripture, I have to say what Scripture says, not what what theology has has developed over the... Does that make sense to you? So... So here, what is this eternal covenant? Probably the, Mos- the Noahic covenant. I want you to remember, going back to Genesis 8 and 9, this is made with all flesh, including the animals. And the primary um, issue for the, no- the Noahic covenant is the refusal to shed blood. All kinds of shedding blood. I'm, I'm not all kinds, but the refusal to shed blood. It's the refusal to shed blood when there is no legitimacy to it. The murderer must be put to death. Yes? The animal that kills a human being must be put to death. Does it matter whether there's repentance or not? According to Genesis 9, does it matter whether there's repentance or not? No. It's irrelevant. If there is murder, if it's premeditated murder, it must be put to death. Am I making sense to you? And if, if, as we learn later in the Mosaic Covenant, if there is a, a murder that is committed and nobody knows who did it, Israel still has to make sacrifice. I, I can't put the murderer to death, but I have to make a sacrifice to deal with this or else the land is polluted. Well, didn't we read that the land was polluted here in Genesis? I mean, sorry, in Isaiah 24? Are you with me? Yes? The land is polluted. How much land is polluted? Well, under the Mosaic law, the land of Israel. But who are we talking about in chapter 24? Are we talking about Israel? The whole earth. I I find it sort of uh, ironic. This is supposed to be a judgment, but in our modern times, I just 
in verse 2, and the people will be like the priest, the servant like the master, the equality, everyone's... But it's supposed to be a curse, and yet our society, parts of it, are looking for us to, you know, yeah. income inequality, uh, uh, you have to be my boss, or yeah. anarchy. Well, in this case, the issue is the the uh, unity and equality of all levels of society. Nobody gets off because of position. Everybody is judged equally. So in that case, if that's the kind of equality you want, <laughs> I'm for that. <laughs> uh, the, so the, the issues here are nobody has pride of place. Nobody gets an exemption. Nobody gets... What, what, what are the words I want? I don't have the words to use. Commutation of the penalty. Nobody gets a pass. So the judgment is going to fall in a variety of places. Uh, verse 4, there, there, is, there is a fascinating set of puns here. Um, I, and I won't bore you with this in Hebrew, but it's, it, the words, the earth mourns and withers, the earth withers. These words are different words in, in Hebrew as they are in English, but they sound the same. Avala, navala, avala. <laughs> so there's a pun here. There's going to be everywhere you turn, it's going to be mourning and grief as the judgment of God is coming. And it's going to be on the pattern of the flood. Uh, one of the <laughs> one of the stories that's part of my Dallas seminary experience as a student and now as a teacher, I've passed it on to the next generations, is a story they used to tell, and you've heard it, many of you have heard this before, and I'm sorry to repeat it, but it fits at this point. Um, fellow was bringing his son home from Sunday school, and he said, what did you talk about in Sunday school this morning? The kid said, we talked about Noah's flood. He said, you don't sound too impressed. He said, no. I can't believe there was a year-long worldwide flood that killed all the, all the human race on the earth. His dad said, well, son, don't you think if God wanted to, he could do that? And the boy said, well, if you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, the, the issue here is that if it's happened before, It likely will happen again. Alan Ross, who taught a course on Genesis that just absolutely changed my whole way of looking at the text because he started teaching us how to study stories. Nobody else had done that in my seminary experience. But uh, he said, there are two events that show the unswerving wrath of God against sin. One is effectively universally remembered the other is universally forgotten but neither one is heeded they are the flood every every apparently every group on the his, on the face of the earth has a tradition of a flood that judges human sin but nobody takes it to heart the other the unswerving wrath of god against sin is the cross and nobody pays attention to that either my, my point is that God has judged the whole human race in the past. 
we must assume that he is going to judge the whole, whole human race again. So in, in a very, very famous verse, 2, Thessalonians, 2 Peter 3, might turn it there just a moment, that we take out of context, as I've pointed out to you in the past, uh, proof texting is a dangerous thing because when you take a verse out of context, you can make it say anything you want it to say. Yes? Well, if it's, if it's dangerous to proof text, how dangerous is it, is it to take half a verse and quote it as if it is establishing all truth? But the, but the important thing in 2, Thessalonians, 2 Peter 3, verse, verse 9, I'm sorry, um, uh, verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the, the Lord one day is like a thousand years and, one th- and a thousand years like one day. I, I didn't go back far enough. Um, verse uh, 3. Uh, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Um, but verse 5 introduces the category of judgment. It escapes their judgment, their, their attention that in the past, judgment came in the form of a flood. Yes? So now verse 9 the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The point is that judgment is delayed, but the delay of judgment is not an indication that, that, that judgment is not coming again. If he has done it in the past, he's going to do it in the future. Yes? In reference to the flood, all, everybody, all nations, Everybody mm-hmm. was part of it. But not everybody was judged. Yeah. No one in his family was therefore not judged. They escaped. Yeah. Judgment. Okay. So if that's such a precedent, then the first six verses here of chapter 24 could be the tribulation. And there could be a rapture prior yeah. to this where you're going to have yeah. believers escape yeah. this judgment, but the rest There's some validity in that, but it's it's not sufficiently nuanced, and I don't have time to get through chapter 24 and to nuance it. The uh, read Revelation um, six through what 18, and and see that there are righteous people who go through the time of judgment. Uh, It is it is the case that Noah and his family were not killed in the judgment, but they went through the judgment. They were judged by being exempted from death, but they still went through the judgment. Folks, hear me, hear me, hear me. They lost their loved ones too. They lost their friends too. So, So there is a sense in which one can go through judgment, and the judgment is the judgment of the just, not the judgment of the guilty. Does this make any sense to you? Uh, so we will go through judgment. Second Corinthians 5, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether good or useless. Yes? So we will go through just judgment too, but it's the judgment of the just, not at the judgment of the, of the wicked. Do, do you follow this? So I'm, I'm not here 
denying a pre-tribulational rapture. I'm just saying it may not be part of this passage. Exactly. That, that we'll have to look for in other places. The, let me go on. Verse 8. The gaiety of the tambourine ceases. Well, well of course. What would you expect? You know, you're not dancing. When, well, but, the word, but the word ceases, both at the beginning of the verse and at the end, is a fascinating word. It's the word Shavat. What's it sound like? What's it sound like? Sabbath. That's what it is. It's the exact word. The word Sabbath doesn't mean rest. It means to stop. And what should have been a time of what Shavat normally means is a time of rest from work, rest in enjoying the promises of God, rest and delighting in the, in the presence of God and the work of God in their lives, now is a time for ceasing all of that, and it's a time of judgment. So, so everything is turned upside down, as it were. Verse 10, the city of chaos is broken down. What, my text says city of chaos. Have you ever heard the word tohu? This is not tofu. Okay, this, is, this is tohu. <laughs> T-O-H-U, tohu. So... Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 2. Uh, it, um, the earth was, with, we read, without form and void. In Hebrew, the earth was tohu vabohu. Um, one of my professors says this is probably a figurative way of expressing something. He called it a sintam. I, that, that term is not particularly important, except to say it's like the word butterfly, if you take its etymology, butter and fly, you won't understand what we're talking about. Yes? So, so butterfly means something different from the parts, right? So uh, we would use a phrase in English today, topsy-turvy. And if you, if you pin down the, the uh, etymology of it, the top is where the turf should be, and the turf is where the top should be. Are you with me here? But, but we never think in those terms when we hear the term topsy-turvy. Yes? What does it mean when you're, you're, you talk about something being topsy-turvy? Well, if I may quote a, a, a disgraced comedian, <laughs> he said, my, wife, my mother was an expert on pigsties. She said, your room is the worst pigsty I have ever seen. <laughs> so she was an expert on pigsties. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> his room was topsy turvy. This makes Are you with me here? Nothing is in place. Everything is messed up. It's it's a chaotic mess. So I probably can't take tohu vabohu apart and use it for other purposes. Just simply it's a chaotic mess. What is this what is, though, this city of chaos? I don't know. I'm inclined, in light of the broad context leading from chapter 12 all the way up to this point, to think of Jerusalem as the city of chaos. But if, as we have said on several occasions, as Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith, if it begins with Jerusalem, it goes out from there to all nations. So the city of chaos receives the judgment first and then all the nations do. Another view is that this is the 
and, and uh, two or three of the commentaries go this direction, that this is the, the city of man contrasted with the city of God. And I'm, I'm not sure whether that's a valid way to go or not. One of the com commentaries, Motier, that we just uh, cited, um, points out that there is a city of God in, Hebrew, um, in Genesis chapter 11, which turns entirely against the Lord and brings universal judgment again. Yes? In the judgment of the, of the various languages of the earth. So the passage is just ringing the changes on complete, utter judgment uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the world. So verse 11, there is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. Verse 13 through verse 15. Now, a remnant will joyfully praise the Lord. And this, this passage can be read in a variety of ways. I'll, I'll just go with this one. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the, pro among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree and the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. They will raise their voices. They will shout for joy. They will cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore the, the glory of the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord of the God of Israel, and the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs this, I'm, I'm going to go on to verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. So there's, there is rejoicing, as, and here are people of the, of the earth who are rejoicing because the glory of God is being shown. Uh, this is not a day of rejoicing over judgment of the wicked. This is a day of grief over the judgment of the wicked. wicked. We should never rejoice when the wicked get what they deserve. We should rejoice in the justice of God, yes, but not in the fall of the wicked. We should, our, our, our call is to be emissaries from the kingdom of God to call people to citizenship in that new kingdom. Yes? So our, our task is to be people of mercy who bring the mercy of God, not the judgment of God, but the mercy of God to the lost. And that day, though, when God's righteous judgment is poured out on the nations, the righteous will see and rejoice, except one, at least in this passage. Verse 16 concluded. Did you notice we didn't read the end of verse 16? But I say, woe is me, woe is me. Alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. There's a pun here. Uh, so woe is me. Um, in Hebrew, I, I decided to afflict you with Hebrew here. Let, let, me, let me read it for you. Bogadin bagadu, ubeged bogadin bagadu. Yeah, well, now you understand. But I, I thought it was helpful to hear it. Because just think of the of this. It's a bitter kind of statement. Bugdin bagadu, ubeged bugdin bagadu. It does sound ominous. It is ominous, and the prophets having to live through the time when the judgment must fall, and there seems to be no evident 
deliverance from God. So, um, let's see. The plosive quality of the consonants lends a hammering sound, which reinforces the idea of the statement. Before the gavel falls for the last time, how much treachery, how much brutal plunder must take place? In this sense, as in so many others, the Jewish people have represented the rest of us, how often they were plundered by Greeks, Romans, and he's talking about after biblical time, after Old Testament times, by Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Arabs, Spaniards, Russians, Germans. Nor have they suffered alone. They have indeed represented millions of others. Glimpsing a bit of that, who would not cry, Woe is me! How, how are we to think about what Jewish people went through during World War II? How are, we to, how are we to face the reality that there was hardly a family that was not touched, whether they lived in Germany or not, whether they lived in Europe or not, hardly a family that was not touched? Are you with me here? How are we to even think about what we now call the Holocaust? I don't even know. I, I can't put it together. And yet, it has been the lot of the Jewish people since ancient times. It's starting again. Deuteronomy 28, the end of the chapter. You will find no place for your foot to rest. And in the morning you will say, oh, that it were night. And at the night, in the night, you will say, oh, that it were morning. The night is too dreadful and the day is even more. Are you with me here? How are we to account for this? It's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. And if it begins with us, what is the end of those who are outside? Israel didn't have faith. There's still the people of the covenant. Well, they've got a remnant, but Israel yeah. whole. Yes, but there's still the people of the covenant. Not all will inherit the covenant because part of the, the condition of inheriting the covenant is first physical circumcision, Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Genesis 17. But secondly, faith, Deuteronomy 10, 16. So you have the two qualifications, but being an Israelite means you're an heir of the covenant. You may not inherit. I just finished last night reading Sense and Sensibility. Um, it's the first time I've read the novel. I've, I've watched the movie several times, but it's the first time I've read the novel. And there's Edward and Robert the characters in the story, Edward has made a, a bad choice about whom he would marry, and his mother disinherits him and, and uh, uh, casts him out of the family. Then the girl that, uh, that Edward was going to marry ended up marrying Robert, who got the inheritance, and, and Robert, at the end of the story, is expelled from the family, and Edward is, re is returned, but Robert kept the inheritance. <laughs> so, 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 being an heir doesn't mean that you certainly will inherit. It means the potential of inheriting. Does this make sense to you? And you can lose your place in the inheritance, but that doesn't mean you're not an heir. Does this make sense to you? So the issue is, it's the Reuben judgment. Pardon? Reuben. Yeah, Reuben lost his. He didn't lose it entirely. He just lost his place as the firstborn as did Levi and Simeon. 
And then Judah came along, and he was a whole lot better, wanted to kill his brother. <laughs> and he got the, the first, the, 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 the bride of primogeniture. Uh, my point is, is, folks, judgment begins with the people of the covenant. And then it moves out. Are you with me? So here, are the, here in verses 16 and following, here are the people of the covenant. What do we do in the midst of this? How do we survive? Well, you survive like you've always survived, by clinging to God no matter the cost. So moving on then, um, verses 16 to 23, the Lord will advance his kingdom through the judgments. And this is how you survive. How do I survive in the midst of the judgment? How do I survive when everything in our country is falling apart and all the structures that we have trusted and taken, taken confidence in all our lives are going away? How do we survive when the structures that should protect us don't protect us? <coughs> Cling to God. So verse 16, verses... Uh, 17 through 20, now, the shattering of the earth. So what do you do? Well, 17, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. For the windows above are opened, and here is another reference to the flood. The windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. Are we to say, um, one of the translations even reads, the earth has collapsed. How does the earth collapse? This is language that, is beyond our comprehension. We can't see how all this language works. But the one thing we know is think about what an earthquake is like. Yes? The earth is, is shattered. It's, it's, it's broken asunder. And there's no steady place to stand. That's where we are, brothers and sisters. This is where we've always been. It's just that there's been a, a kind of cocoon around us in some respects making us feel that maybe we were safer than we actually are. And it's never been the case that we could trust the city of man. It's never been the case that we could trust the city of man. The only thing that we can trust is the city of God. That's always been our only hope. What God is doing is he's shaking us so that we see there is no place else to find stability. There's no place else which is safe. Uh, from the Civil War came a, a joke. I've used it on several occasions, so forgive me. But in the, mid, in the midst of battle, when the battle is, is, uh, is, is most fierce, you will find me where the shells are thickest, under the ammunition wagon. <laughs> in, in battle during the Civil War, they kept the ammunition wagon three miles to the rear. So, <laughs> so, so uh, Martin Luther said, If in the midst of battle I stand firm on all the battleground except where the battle is hot, hottest, I am little more than a traitor. 
Psalm 48 talks about the nations attacking Jerusalem, but Jerusalem being the only place of safety. (laughs) Am I making sense to you? Um, Then, folks, we will take, we will have to take, in light of a passage like Isaiah 24, we will have to take the, the, the view that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It really is a strong tower. Our God is a, is a crag on which, to which we may retreat and find security. Our God is a fortress. Our God is a shield. I can't see the shield. I can't see the fortifications. But taking refuge in the Lord is the only place of security. I have just five minutes. May I put off any questions? So the earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. That leads us to the last portion of the chapter, God's judgment of the highest and the lowest. So here we're back to this issue of equality again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. Deuteronomy says that God has has appointed the nations their gods. We went to see a movie yesterday called uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Kate Blanchett is in it. She's a very, very secular, neo-pagan kind of woman. But in it, they, their daughter is, is called B all the way through, but B comes from the name Balakrishna because uh, something about in Hindu religion had impressed her at the baby's birth, and so she calls her B, Balakrishna. How come India has Krishna for its God? Because God appointed it as part of the judgment of the nations. It's a strange statement, isn't it? Um, so the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon from the highest to the lowest and will be confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. Um, there, there's, there are several puns in this line. The white face, if you've, if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, or better if you've read it, but I don't put too much hope in that. But um, Gollum is afraid of the white face, the, the moon even. It's too much light for him. He wants darkness. The white will be darkened, and the sun, the, the, sun, the heat, will be ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. God is coming to judge, and there is a place where where the faithful can stand. It's in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. Turn to Revelation 6, just a moment. You have the uh, the 
six seals in, in Revelation 6. Um, verse 15 is where I want to start. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rock. Revelation, I hear still pages turning. It's right after Jude. So if you're having trouble. Uh, <laughs> uh, and among the rocks and mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. When lambs are wrathful enough to scare you. Something's really bad going on. And then they, they pose a great question. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, I, I just notice and, and, and remind you that John didn't write chapter 7. If you have chapter 7 between verse 17 and verse 1, John didn't write that. Okay. He just wrote verse 1. The words chapter 7, John didn't write. Okay. There is not a division here. I, I was trying, I was hoping you'd get it. But so, so, who can stand? Well, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. And at verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the uh, earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe. Now we know who can stand, 144,000, but look also at verse 9. After these things, I, I looked, and behold, a great multitude whom no one could count, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing um, before the throne and before the Lamb. Who can stand? In Isaiah 24, it's the elders of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 6 and 7, it's those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Are you with me here? The only status I have is that I've washed my robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of that, the Lord is a strong refuge, a stronghold, a fortress, a shield. He never fails. But I never see his protection until I need it. And even when I need it, I can't see it. I have to trust it. When I trust it, he's a strong shield. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is harder material than we want to deal with. I don't want to think about this world being judged. I don't want to think about going through such days. But everything in our country seems to be tottering. How easily everything can fall apart. Father, there is only one rock of refuge to which we may run. It's always been true. We've never, we've never not known that you were a refuge, but we've never had to face in quite this way the refuge that you are. Turn our hearts to you. Help us learn. I don't want to pray this. I don't, I don't want to face 
what this means. But we must know it, Father, and we must come to learn. Help us learn what it means that you are a refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs>